0: Okay, I've only got 10 minutes, uh, and I'd like to have some time for you to ask questions at the end. That'd be great. So I'm going to canter through. um, Because actually, what I think is really important is for young people especially, but everyone to go out into a dark sky, get away from light pollution and to see the actual photons, the rays of light actually coming into your eyes and not looking at pictures and not being disturbed by the difficulties of using a telescope or indeed binoculars. The graduates here, they operate big telescopes using computers in big telescopes but they aren't actually even in the room with the telescope. Um, We have a real problem uh, in this country and in fact all over the northern hemisphere. Light pollution is our biggest enemy and if you take nothing away from my little talk then have a go at local light pollution. We should be saving energy anyway, but if we can just stop shining light upwards, uh, it'll make it easier for especially the young to realise where we sit in space in this fantastic panoply of stars that is the only unaltered thing since ancient times. It's the only thing we haven't really managed to, to spoil, a few satellites, but they don't get in the way mainly. I'm very lucky that I, I actually was involved in building an observatory in one of the dark sites in the, in the UK, and that's up in Northumberland, and if you go there, Kielder Observatory is the largest publicly clear access open observatory uh, in, the, um, in the UK. Um, One thing you have to do before you observe, uh, three observing techniques I'm going to put up here, is don't even start observing until you are dark adapted. You are mammals, you have night vision. When you go out at night, most people don't use it, they use a torch, hopeless. You have a bright piece of ground in front of you, everything else is dark because your pupils are small. But if you sit in the dark, or better in red light, because red light releases a chemical in your eye that actually keeps your eye adapted, Then your eye opens by a factor of 10, and you see 100 times more light. And telescopes don't magnify. That's not their prime purpose. They collect light. They're big eyes. So if you've got a big-eyed telescope, no point in going to it with a little eye. But even without a telescope, your eyes need to be big. And any of you who've been to the planetarium will see the effect of getting dark adapted. Uh, And if you haven't been to the planetarium, um, I hope you get a chance to go go there later. So that's the first thing you must do, dark adaption. The second thing is you don't try and look at the object you're trying to see in the sky. It's a bit bit odd. Say there's a star over there, look slightly to the side because the bit of your eye that's really sensitive at night is at the side, the rods at the back of your eye. So look to the side and just move your eye around a little bit and actually you'll see really uh, uh, dimmer objects. And the third thing is don't try and see the object you're trying to see. Sound a bit odd, but these objects are at infinity. They're so far away. You're not focusing like a book. You want to be really relaxed. Okay, So dark adaption, uh, averted vision, relaxed, unfocused eye. Um, The other thing is that we are very different, have a very different sensitivity to light. Uh, In the daytime, we're sensitive very much to sunlight and green and yellows. At nighttime, we lose red sensitivity. So red torches, red lights, that's how observatories work. And if you're going to walk around at night, Use a red torch, but no white light, because your pupils will shrink down. So all those things first. Now, here are some objects and things that you can look at. No telescope, no binoculars, fun things. Probably one of the things that hooks young people to astronomy is to see shooting stars. I say to all my pupils and uh, children that, uh, that I teach, um, if you see a shooting star have a wish, well sometimes in the year you can get loads of these shooting star showers and you get rid of all your year's wishes, fantastic stuff and here are the ones for this year, you've missed the Quadrantids in January the 3rd, the, the names are rather long and complicated and compare to the area of the sky that they appear to come from. Um, the one that most people know, the Perseus, the Tears of St. Lawrence, some people call them in August, August the 12th, it's the one that most people know about because to be honest going to the other ones it's pretty jolly cold. To be up late tonight. so most people like the ones in, in August, and August the 12th they peak and you might see 80 per hour, okay, it's a lot of nice wishes. These are tiny specks of dust, about a grain of sand in size that the earth hits as it goes around the sun, but it's hitting them at about 70,000 miles an hour. So they a huge amount of energy and they burn up as shooting stars or meteors, and just maybe the bigger bits actually make it to the ground, in fact small bits make it to the ground all the time, the earth's hit by about 50,000 tons a year. But big bits sometimes hit the ground as meteorites, and I know, because I've got one and I'm walking around the queues occasionally, but there's another meteorite in the hands-on section. You might go and uh, look at it. Um, This is going to be the year of the comets, apparently. Uh, There's going to be a binocular comet coming up quite soon, but the predictions are, and sometimes these are right and sometimes these aren't, that there's going to be a really bright comet, maybe as bright as the moon, uh, in November this year. Uh, it's named ISON, that stands for something that I can't now remember. Um, but this is a comet, this is the last bright comet, the brightest comet for a century that I took a picture of in 2005, or 2007, Comet McNaught, visible in daylight, but it was only visible for half an hour in the Northern Hemisphere so you had to know it was coming in order to catch it. So if you're lucky you see a comet. You don't have to be that lucky to see the Moon, but many people look at the Moon and they don't realise that actually you can see lots of things on the Moon. Just by eye, and people have seen shapes on the moon for thousands of years—snails, rabbits, uh, pregnant women with baskets, lobsters, faces, men on the moon. Astronomers have pretty vivid imaginations sometimes. But I teach my pupils the leftward leaping hare. Okay, he's leaping over to the left. Um, I probably have a pointer here, but I haven't got it immediately. But you might be able to see his back legs on the right and a little tail, rather skeletal body, front paws and then his ears over the top. Can you see him? as a hair. So see if you can see him next time there's a full moon. And one of the things you can do when you know the shape of the hair is to know one of the, I think, key things that all children should know anyway, actually everyone should know, where have humans stepped other than the Earth? And of course, only the moon has been stepped on. Only 12 people have actually stepped on it. Uh, no females. All Americans. One scientist. And where did they first step? Where did Neil Armstrong, of course, recently died, step? And the answer is just between the hair's legs. Okay, so you remember that. Uh, It's on the Sea of Tranquility, find the hare's legs at the back there, just between his legs, that's where Apollo 11 landed, so find the hare and you can start to learn your way around the moon. If people say, well, we didn't land, it's all a conspiracy, uh, well, we've now taken photographs of it and there is the actual uh, base that the lander had that had to use for its uh, takeoff uh, with the shadow being cast and uh, uh, there are pictures of all the Apollo landing sites now and even you can see the footprints on the moon from the landing site to the Astronomical uh, Scientific instruments, so uh, they were were there. Um, Sometimes, you can see in the sky the moon at different phases, that's being lit by different amounts of sun, and sometimes you can see what's called the old moon and the new moon's arms, or earth shine. The sun is lighting the right-hand side, the sun's down there, but that sign's been, the left side's been lit by shine from the Earth's clouds. The Earth is immensely reflective, sunlight comes to the Earth and goes back into space, and that's earth shine, so see if you can see that. Um, two other things, um, lunar aureoles, worth looking out for in the winter. These are caused by ice crystals. They're relatively common every couple of weeks, uh, and you get this sort of straw-colored circle around the moon, and you may well have seen those, but that's what it is. Rarer, uh, maybe once a month or so, maybe twice a month, you get what's called a lunar halo, and that's actually, on a really good night, you can see the rainbow, it's actually a circular rainbow, again, caused by ice crystals. It's always the same size in the sky. At arm's length, hold your hands out, well, nearly always the same size, um, most commonly, uh, the two, two sort of hands It's a really big thing around the moon, and that's a lunar halo, and they're worth going out and looking at and trying to take pictures of if you uh, are ambitious. Um, Conjunctions in the sky are something we look out for and it's something that astrologers certainly like when the moon and Jupiter meet all things are going to happen. So keep a look out for when two objects are, are close. And uh, this was a conjunction between Venus, Jupiter and, and the moon and actually unfortunately I should have used a different picture but actually at one point it was like a sort of smiley face with the moon and two so, little dots. So finding shapes in the sky and being aware, I think more than anything uh, my message today is, is look up. Make sure people are looking up, but of course you, you need clear skies. Weather doesn't help. Uh, I'm a bit naughty putting this one in because you can't see these by eye, but because there are children here and I think it's a really easy and useful project to do, with simple binoculars, if you look at Jupiter, which is man- magnificent this year, really magnificent, you will see the Galilean moons. And of course they change position every night because they're orbiting Jupiter. So on a little sketchbook, don't worry about taking pictures, paper and pen, sketch their position, go out next night, sketch them again next night, and if you flick through them, get them, turning around, it's a great little project, but you need a few clear nights. Um, I asked people what are the brightest objects in the sky, Sun, the Moon, the third brightest object in the sky that can cast a shadow at its best is not Venus, it's actually the International Space Station and there are various websites including my observatory which I'll put at the end, but uh, Heavens Above is a a site where you can actually see the times that the space station is coming over. From any one point on the Earth's surface it comes over for ten days every five weeks. So it's complicated timing, but if you can see it and you catch it and you know the time, you can get a group of people together and go, and over it comes, okay? And it's like sort of modern druidry. Um, But with good binoculars, you can actually see the solar panels uh, coming out the side. So watch out for the space station coming over. Uh, It's pretty cool to know this is humans' attempts living in space. There are uh, people on it all the time for the last sort of seven or eight, eight years. Um, These are a bit rarer, but on that same site, they're they're up there, I've caught these occasionally, these are satellites that occasionally catch the sun, they they rotate, they're sort of like doors, they're rather flat, they rotate and occasionally catch the sunlight, and if you know when they're coming, in a blank piece of sky, and I have only done this once, got a group of people out and I said, oh, look over there, and it flashes like this, and they really, you know, people almost get down on the ground. Uh, but it's quite fun. It's quite fun to, uh, uh, to see if you can catch them. Um, right. If you go to the planetarium, there's a few things here that I'm going to go through anyway. But if you want to learn astronomy and the way around the sky, don't go out middle of the night. Too many stars. OK? Go out when the sun is just setting. And the stars then come out in order of brightness. And what you want to find in the sky are shapes, not constellations. There are no dogs or winged horses or animals or rats in the sky. Lovely pictures, lovely things for books, lovely stories, but not for astronomy. Okay, because constellations are just square areas of the sky, like states in the US or counties in the UK. Look for shapes, and here's the shape of the saucepan. It's not a plow or a dipper; it's a saucepan. Okay, and so there it is, a saucepan, and of course those two are the pointers. They point to Polaris, the pole star, the only star that doesn't move in the night. Everything else goes round it in a, in a circle. And there's another really interesting thing at the top of the handle there, there are two stars. They're not actually close together. They're a double star called, uh, called Mizar and Alcor. And the ancient Greeks knew them as the horse and the rider. And it was a test of Spartan warriors. If they could separate the two, they could be a warrior. Couldn't separate the two. Stay at home doing the cooking. I have to say, I can't work out how they didn't cheat. But anyway, that's the story. That's the story. So there we go. Classic picture of loads of stars. And can you see the shapes? If you can't, narrow your eyes down. Just narrow your eyes down to slits and you see the bright stars. So if you found a caulking night and you can't find your way around, and you haven't got your iPad with its uh, app on, uh, of course, iPad apps, absolutely no use at all unless they've got a red screen, because you destroy your night vision and your eyes small. They're beginning to cotton onto this, and I think there's one that has a red screen. Anyway, narrow your eyes down and you'll see the W of Cassiopeia, and it's a great place to see the Milky Way band. The Milky Way was, to the ancients, the most prominent thing in the sky. They went out, they didn't see stars, they saw this band across the sky. Uh, The ancient Egyptians thought it was a goddess lying across the sky, uh, and it's actually the plane of our galaxy. We're in a galaxy, the Milky Way, 200 billion odd stars, like two fried eggs back to back, and this is looking along the white. And sadly, I would say most of the people who come up to my observatory uh, have never seen it. They do on a clear night at the observatory. But it is a shape in the sky that determined early religions, early cosmologies, early beliefs. So it's a shame that people aren't aren't seeing it. And then lastly, I'm going to end with uh, the Winter Constellation, uh, Orion that everyone's familiar with, and of course Orion's Belt, a very familiar line of stars in, in the sky. Uh, and I, I've cheated here, that's what Hubble Space Telescope looks like. They're just so, so beautiful. And if you see a line of three and one slightly off, you're pretty sure it is Orion's Belt that's being, uh, that's being uh, reflected in, in that. Beautiful names, uh, Egypt, uh, Arabic. Arabic names and uh, a nebulae where stars are forming and this little stellar birthplace, the Orion Nebula in its uh, sword. But by eye you can see that that's a fuzzy patch, just slightly not quite as clear as the other other stars. And then if you follow Orion's Belt upwards to the right you get to the Pleiades, Seven Sisters, this little fuzzy patch in the sky and here we've got representations of Orion's Belt and the Pleiades and you, you find cultures all over the world. Uh, Representing these these is really important because they're not a star. People watch them, but you should watch them because they're a seasonal marker. When you first see them in the evening, it's a mark of winter, and cultures new to come down from high, um, high pastures. And when it sets at last in the west in the evening, you know summer is on the way. So, uh, and then uh, there are a number of stars that actually never rise and never set. Uh, from a given location because Polaris stays still, but all other stars, because the Earth rotates once a day, they rise and set, rising in the east, setting in the west, but the ones that never rise and set are the immortals and cultures thought of them as the, uh, the area for uh, gods and uh, ancestors. So the last thing is that's a light-polluted sky, a less light-polluted sky, that's what it should look like and uh, we all ought to fight for that uh, in order to actually connect with our environment. And I'll stop there.